0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton. Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132. Business radio powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. We are featuring a series this month called 2019 A Look Ahead. Today, we're going to turn our attention in part to the banking sector. Banks have done well under the Trump administration, which has worked on cutting regulations. At the same time, in 2018, some banks found themselves in quite a bit of trouble. Deutsche Bank was involved in a tax evasion scandal. Wells Fargo agreed to pay $575 million to settle investigations involving various practices. Citibank agreed to pay $38.7 million to settle charges related to the American depository, uh, depository receipts. And with the economy going strong, the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates several times to make sure that the economy doesn't overheat and lead to more economic strife. But that has drawn criticism from President Trump, who claims that those moves are hurting the economy. So what what might we see with the Fed and the banks in 2019? We ask that question and more of Peter Conti brown Assistant Professor of Business Studies and Legal Ethics here at the Wharton School, and Dr. Lisa Cook, who's an Associate Professor of Economics and International Relations at at Michigan State University. Peter, Lisa, Happy New Year to you both. Thank you for your time. You bet. Glad to be here. Thank you, Peter. Great to have you. We'll have Lisa with us in just a second. So, uh, Peter, uh, th- this year, obviously, this past year, obviously, was a a, uh, a significant one with banks having to deal with all sorts of uh, financial strife uh, because of, of their practices, we are a decade out now from the financial crisis, and I've mentioned this with you a couple of times, that it is still surprising that we see the level of issue with some of these banks today, knowing what happened a decade ago.
1: I think that's a fair critique. The memories are are exceedingly short. Uh, and that's that's a truism for the trading desk, right, the average tenure of of you know, traders in in uh, in the asset markets are, is is going to be less than a decade, so that's not too surprising. What's more surprising is that the executives at these banks are the same executives who lived through the trauma of two thousand eight, uh, and we see uh, a, a pretty spectacular uh, set of of risks that they're taking now. Now they're different, right? They're not exactly the same. Banks are better capitalized than they were in two thousand eight. Right. Um, we are. Uh, we have not seen a return, an exploded return to structured finance the way that we had seen in uh, in 2008. What I'm more worried about, frankly, is just how much uh, legal risk these banks have been exposed to, in particular on uh, questions of fraud, whether we're talking about 1MDB and Goldman Sachs, uh, or we're talking about Wells Fargo and consumer fraud, or we're talking about a whole a number of banks and and money laundering concerns, Deutsche being the most prominent of these. We're seeing a a set of of, of really spectacular risk taking around legal liability uh, that is and continues to be very troubling.
0: Lisa, your thoughts?
2: Sure. Uh, so I th- I think this is a, a a big concern, especially. So I I would say that my big concern uh, going forward is the banks or the financial entities that are not regulated like financial institutions, like deposit taking uh, financial institutions. And these are the ones that exist in the, uh, in the shadow economy, um, the ones, say private equity firms, that aren't as, as regulated. I think that's where a lot of the big risk is coming from. So we hear the headlines about, about Wells Fargo and about um, bank capital. But what we don't hear uh, as much about are the uh, private equity firms and the kinds of uh, derivatives that uh, undermine the financial system before – So that would be my concern going forward.
0: And so then I guess the question becomes, do you think we're going to see change, and especially coming, Lisa, from Washington, with the the change in dynamic we have on Capitol Hill with Democrats controlling the House of Representatives, do you think we're going to see a change on this push of deregulation that has been one of the the themes of the Trump administration in its first two years?
2: I certainly believe so. Uh, Maxine Waters is going to be the chair of the... Uh, financial, uh, oh gosh, what is it? financial financial Institute services. To, Com- so financial services committee. that's yeah. right. They changed their name, and uh, this is certainly uh, one of the things that she's very concerned about. And that starts uh, with, you know, the sector that we're talking about, the the banking sector. But certainly, they're going to be uh, concerned and worried about the non-deposit taking uh, institutions. So I think that. At at least they will try to change. They may be able to stop some things from happening. They may be able to uh, make changes to uh, Dodd Frank or continue changes to Dodd Frank that everybody wanted, and uh, roll back the ones that uh, uh, the the changes that uh, were not necessarily consensus changes.
1: Peter, your thoughts? I I think one of the things to look at in 2019, as we as we think about this changing policy. Uh, framework is the number of players on the field, and in particular, how those players are changing. So, Lisa is absolutely correct. to note, Maxine Waters and the House Democrats and what this is going to mean. And this is going to reach far beyond banking, right? And so, the House Financial Services Committee, now that the Democrats have the gavel, they're going to be using this to investigate not only bad practices from banks, but also throughout the Trump administration and using in the way that the financial system has been used or abused um, by by these political actors. What I think is a, an untold story about 2018 is the evacuation of the financial stability from the financial stability field by the Financial Stability Oversight Council and the Office for Financial Research. These are two new entities created by Dodd-Frank nearly a decade right. ago who were seen to be the solution to the problem that was 2008, right? Including the the question that Lisa noted earlier about these shadow banks and, and uh, the pockets of contagion that they can create outside the formal banking system. Now, now, FSOC and OFR have their flaws, no question. But what we've seen in the last two years is that they've essentially been gutted or have just uh, abandoned the the work of financial stability oversight. So, what does that mean? Well, now we've the Fed has just done something that's pretty remarkable, which is it's published a financial stability report and made a promise it's going to do that every year. Um, does that mean that the Fed now is taking a stand and saying we will be the financial stability regulator for the U.S. economy? Right. Uh, if that's true, that's remarkable because that very question was debated at great length in 2009 and 10. I was determined that no, the Fed should not hold the keys of the the financial stability kingdom. Um, But I don't blame the Fed for saying, you know what, we've got to stand up here, because if they don't, who will?
2: Lisa? I completely agree with uh, Peter on on this. Um, I think that the Federal Reserve System recognizes that it has coordination power that is not located in other parts of the uh, of the government, uh, including coordination power with other central banks. And at the end of the day, it really has to be the guardian of the stability of the financial system. So I, I noticed this development, as did uh, Peter. And uh, as a researcher, I was certainly looking forward to having uh data from, from these entities, uh FSOC and other entities. But it it just seems as though there's not the the organization, the will to be able to uh to, to do this. And the Fed can't wait for this. The Federal Reserve System can't can't wait for this.
0: One of the other things surrounding the Fed that uh, that I wanted to bring up is just the role that the Fed plays right now, and it is has always been seen. Peter, I, I believe you would agree with this that it's it's supposed to be an independent institution, and now you have a president that is making comments about the Fed and its decisions, whether or not to raise interest rates, and whether or not there is a, an influence being brought forward by the president towards the Federal Reserve right now.
1: I think there's, there's so much misunderstanding about what it means when we say that the central bank, the Fed in this case, should be independent. You know, and um, as we've discussed at length before, Dan, independence is not an all-or-nothing phenomenon. You don't you know, turn on the switch and all of a sudden the Fed is independent and turn it off and, and it, you know, it ceases to exist. The Fed exists within a political environment. It has uh, and needs mechanisms of accountability and legitimacy. And so criticizing Fed policy, wanting to know more about the people who sit in those chairs who decide it, all, that's extremely healthy. The problem with what Donald Trump has done in attacking the Fed is that now everything the Fed does is refracted through the prism of presidential politics even when it has absolutely nothing to do with the president, right? right, It's only going to be, and the New York Times has reported on, has fallen into this trap. CNBC does it probably every day. And it, it is, it's just false. And that is to say, in defiance of Trump, Fed does X, or the Fed capitulates to Trump and does Y, um, when in fact we have absolutely no evidence that the Fed's policymaking decisions are, are directly reacting To presidential critiques, but that's all that people really pay attention to. I'll tell you, December 23rd, when the president started, uh, when it was leaked, that the president was thinking about firing Jay Powell, those next three days, I probably got called by more journalists from more countries than the rest of my professional life combined, because people love a fight, and that's what they're going to focus on. And this is one of the most stunning political miscalculations that Donald Trump uh uh may have made because this only can hurt him uh this kind of criticism lisa
2: and i just came back from the american economic association meetings and the biggest earliest news our annual conference was jay powell saying that he would not resign if the president asked him to and that shouldn't be news making because that's kind of what we expect of a fed chair yeah. But it was newsmaking, and I think I, I certainly agree uh, with Peter that this is very dangerous for news organizations to start seeing what the uh, Federal Reserve does as being either um, pro- or anti-President uh, Trump or any, uh, any president. Because certainly all presidents have had their qualms with, uh, with, with Fed chairs or FOMCs the, division, the uh, decisions of the Federal Reserve System. But this seems to be quite a bit of overreach, and I think there is a misunderstanding about what the Fed does and why independence, as we typically study it in economics, is important. Uh, there are many studies that show that uh, the economies of countries that don't have such an independent Fed – uh, have higher inflation rates, for example. Right. And that's something that um, uh, Americans just don't like. We're not accustomed to. And we want to know that someone is always at the helm, regardless of the party in the White House and regardless of the person in the White House. And I think it's 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 very dangerous for Uh, us to be going down that path.
0: And I think, Lisa, a lot of people would basically say the same thing about the banking industry as well, going back to what we were saying before, that with some of the missteps by the banking industry, it would be nice to continue to have somebody kind of overseeing some of the activities that are going on right now.
2: No, that's right. That's right. And I think that um, from what I've heard and from what I've read, there are many consumers who are Uh, relieved, um, if not delighted, that the Democrats will be back in charge of the Financial Services Committee and will have some oversight Mm -hmm. over the CFPB, over the uh, Consumer Mm -hmm. Financial uh, Services uh, Board. And this was because their complaints were being taken seriously. They got to know about the student debt crisis through the CFPB um the, the There are many changes in credit cards, for example, that favored consumers like having a set uh, date that was the due date for uh, payments rather than it fluctuating. Right. Uh, these are things that, that consumers have appreciated tremendously and have made it more uh, made it a lot easier for them to engage in the economy and I think this is where we really want to know. Uh, what kind of leadership there's, uh, there's actually going to be from the Treasury or from uh, the White House. But more importantly, we want to figure out how independent these agencies are going to be to be able to carry out their fundamental task on behalf of the American people and on behalf of, of consumers. And just to add one more thing, Dan, one of the things that I would be really concerned about is the Calculation of say, consumer spending, as you know, consumer spending is a large part of uh, GDP, yeah of our calculation of GDP, and when consumers are less able to participate in the economy, they're less able to influence consumer spending, right so that's you could see that through the lens of the tax cut, where did it go? it didn't go. The people who would spend it more right. readily right. and would raise uh, GDP in a uh, in at least in the short run in the way you would um, expect and the way that was promised. So I think this is where we have to be very watchful of the the mechanisms of consumer spending that might be unleashed if um, uh, if uh, everything goes as the Democrats are saying. Um, or constrained if things continue along the path they've been uh, under the Trump administration.
0: Peter, points to that? Nothing there. I think that
1: Lisa really covers that. I think this is going to be a really interesting uh, show. You know, actually, one one point to add. We've just concluded um, uh, a pretty bleak chapter in the CFPB's history, which is an arguably illegal, although it's moot now, Dual mm-hmm. citizenship of Mick Mulvaney uh, that, that very nearly became triple <laughs> citizenship as he yeah. is the Senate confirmed uh, budget director for the Office of Management Budget at the White House, but then was also acting as director of the CFPB and now is acting as chief of staff for the White House this is this was deeply problematic for a lot of reasons, uh, not least because it compromised the independence of the CFPB that the, that Congress had created for it. Um, but also led to some very bizarre policy larks for someone uh, whose stated ambition prior to to participating with the CFPB had been its destruction. So just to give you one example that blessedly is going to recede into history as a footnote, Uh, Mulvaney had tried to rename the CFPB. In in Dodd-Frank, it's first introduced by statute as the Bureau for Consumer Financial Protection. And he thought that CFPB, Consumer for Financial, uh, or sorry, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, in, so, in somehow made it compromise, made it partisan, made it Elizabeth Warren's brainchild, whereas the BCFP would not. You're already bored listening to me say this, right? right this right, is an yeah. incredibly <laughs> stupid point, but it was going to cost banks a huge amount of money just to reformat their compliance systems with. That bureau. So now <laughs> oh, President Trump has just a completely silly, very expensive, very wasteful little lark, and, and blessedly that's over. Now I'm not I'm not a, a, a huge fan of the new CFPB director, but she has been appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and I was very happy to see that one of her first decisions was saying, "Yeah, we're not going to change the name of the bureau. That's silly. Let's move on to other things." So my hope is that even though uh, you know, President Trump is not President Obama, his personnel appointments are going to differ then, that maybe we'll develop with the House Democrats and with the Senate a kind of administrative and bureaucratic logic that will allow for uh, just the laws that we all agree, don't talk about controversies, the regular stuff that we all agree needs to be enforced, can be enforced outside of this hyper-partisan Environment that can lead to absurdities like the – is it called the CFPB or the BS,
0: uh, BCFP or whatever? <laughs> you got a lot of alphabet there, Peter, huh? Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, let, me, let me ask you, Lisa, as we move forward with, with the banking industry as a whole, uh, we are obviously in a time now where we are seeing more and more – uh, digital and and AI coming forward in in, in many businesses and, and the mm-hmm. banking sector is one of those as well and, and obviously there's also the concern uh, of protecting personal data as well so how is the banking sector sector doing now and and will they do well with all of those elements moving forward because it it seems like a lot of businesses out there are having issues with that thinking about Facebook being one of them.
2: Oh, yes. Yes, that is certainly a big concern. And it's a, a big concern for several reasons. So privacy is, is one issue. And I think that that is the the issue that is uh, fairly well known. You articulated it well, Dan. And I think that another issue, though, is how AI, how algorithms will be used to make banking decisions. So rather than having a credit committee make a decision, for example, having an algorithm uh, make a decision. And what we know from a lot of these algorithms is that they amplify a number of, of biases contained in the decision making of human beings. So we might have, you know, a little bit of bias, you know, and uh, or epsilon bias, and then it becomes two epsilon. When, uh, when AI is doing it. So you may have a lot of people kicked out of the financial system, and often these are uh, the folks who would be the large consumers that I was talking about who would contribute to the uh, economy, would spend uh, a lot of money, would we would get most of our bang for our buck if we were getting money and the economy in their hands. They may be the ones kicked out. And I think that's a really big concern. If you have all of these platforms that are becoming available, say, through mobile means and other other ways, and then on the other hand, with respect to entrepreneurship and with, with respect to growth, you might have uh, algorithms that are being uh, put in place more and more uh, for uh, larger decisions. So that's partly where I would be concerned. And the checks on AI in terms of, uh, trading, I think that's another place where I would be uh, concerned, that the stops uh, may not be in the system that you would have in other trading regimes where it's obvious, say, uh, you know, 3% falling down means that you stop trading, that a program starts, uh, stops trading. But if it's all algorithms talking to one another, they, that may not be perceived um, quickly enough. And we may have a a catastrophe on our hands. So I certainly think that the Federal Reserve is reacting to that by uh, doing more machine learning itself, incorporating more uh, more AI into its own uh, analysis. And I I certainly hope there are. That's uh, the indication that I get. Uh, But I think it would do uh, the Federal Reserve well to to get that kind of toolkit going on its own uh, behalf.
0: Peter, your thoughts?
2: You know, it's
1: one of the trickiest issues. We've used technology to execute capital markets trades almost since the beginning of capital markets trading itself in the 17th century, And, and watching human intuition design the technological apparatus through which these kinds of trades are executed, and then catch up as humans reacting against the technological systems they created. It's just a fascinating pattern throughout history. So I'm, I'm with Lisa. I'm extremely eager to see how we navigate these as these technologies become even more sophisticated, and those who design them ever further away from uh, uh, the details of uh, of these trades. So it's a pretty brave new world in that sense, and. I think in, in the way that we've seen, I mean, 2018 for Facebook, just the the one example I alluded to earlier, such a spectacular fall from grace. Uh, yeah. 2018 was also the year that I deleted my own Facebook account, and I'll tell you, come in, the water is fine. It is a great place to be no longer tethered <laughs> to the social media robots that (laughs) had dictated so much of my my day before
0: quickly quickly for a second i I wanted to get one other thing in uh, lisa and we got about a minute left uh banking consolidation where are we where are we headed on that because we've seen a lot of banks bigger banks consolidate with with smaller banks in in the last few years where are we headed in that area
2: i think into the abyss there is no such thing as an optimal size of uh, a bank. Like there's, I mean, I think larger and larger banks are, are vanity projects. Now that we have the ability to cross barriers that used to be physical, and now they're not physical. So I'm not sure. Um, I, I think these are, are vanity projects. I don't think any, any good can come from this. And too big to fail becomes much more of a reality the larger these things
0: get. Peter, about 30 seconds. Executive pay and bonuses in the banking industry. Oh,
1: um, uh, we'll see what happens. This has been a counter-revolution to to tether pay to to equity prices. Has it gone too far? I think probably yes.
0: Uh, We'll see what, if anything, could be better. Great having you both with us. Happy New Year to both. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, you.